0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make or break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich.
1: And I'm John Roosevelt.
0: And today we have a great interview that John did talking about birth injury cases, which is a very interesting niche within the field of medical malpractice. Uh, It's a highly specialized area, highly technical. And John really talked with the subject matter expert here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation?
1: So I had a great conversation with Chris Norman. And Chris is uh, a buddy of mine who's out in Baltimore. Uh, He works at a firm that does nationwide birth injury uh, cases and medical malpractice cases. But um, really all he does is focus on birth injuries. And he really was able to walk me through um, what an interesting niche practice this is and how complicated and developing the medicine is. A lot of really cool cutting edge stuff. Um, And then Chris was talking to me a lot about the fact that their practice is nationwide, not only are they doing a lot of interesting work in Baltimore, including one of the largest jury verdicts in the history of Maryland, but he's opening an office in Chicago and they're opening offices in other places. So they'll really be able to help out lawyers like us who, I don't do any birth injury work, but if I had uh, you know a family that needed my help, I'd be able to use Chris as a great resource. And so again, it was another one of those where we were really able to dig into the details and learn a ton about A practice area that I think is really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, one of the more interesting aspects of the interview was when you guys really dug into the details about that uh, absolutely enormous verdict that they got against Johns Hopkins over two hundred million dollars on behalf of a of a horribly injured uh, child. You know, it it really brought to the fore the need for a jury to have free reign to award whatever damages they see fit, given the circumstances of, of the case. You know, we have a lot of There are tort reform advocates out there. They believe that damages should be capped. But when you listen to them talk about what happened, it really brings to the forefront that the people who end up being the most dramatically affected by this are those that are the most unfortunate and most hurt among us.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think about tort reform and I think about what's going on in California. California has a law that caps non-economic damages at $250,000. So if you have a child who has a a brain injury or a birth injury um, of the severity of the type that Chris was talking about in their case against Johns Hopkins, you know, that dollar is not uh, passed on to someone else. It's passed on to you as the taxpayer. If all of a sudden the damages are out and this kid needs lifetime care, it's the state and the taxpayers that are footing the bill for what the wrongdoer should have paid for. And I think that's what a lot of the tort reformers miss. You're not protecting doctors and hospitals. You're protecting insurance companies and you're raising your own taxes by failing to protect other people. Um, and I thought it was really, really interesting uh, the way he talked about how the trial went and the details of it. And I'll, I won't spill the beans too much, but I thought it was really, really interesting.
0: The other thing that kind of blew me away a little bit was the number of experts that you end up having to have on a case like that. I mean, it is truly unbelievable. And as a, an attorney, you know, an injury attorney who may be contacted about a case like this, you know, it is really important to either have, you know, understand that you're going to be spending a absolute ton of money right off the bat to have the case reviewed, let alone you know get into a position where you can file it. Um, and, and the range and scope of the experts needed. You know, it, it might be better to co counsel someone like Chris. It might be better to refer the case out entirely, but you really need to be sure that, you know, you are doing your due diligence or you are working with someone who is a subject matter ex- expert who can really walk you through the process because it is very complicated. There are a lot of factors to consider, and you know, it needs to be reviewed from multiple angles.
1: Absolutely. You're somebody who does med mal work and a lot of nursing home work too, which overlaps. And there are a lot of experts in that area, but that is nothing compared to what he was describing in terms of the experts that they use in birth injury cases. I think it, at some point I lost count, but it was well over 10 in one case that he was using. And in this case against Johns Hopkins, he had told me, I think they had 12 or 14 experts at one point between consulting experts and testifying experts. And so you really need to be able to cover so many bases that go well beyond the normal medical malpractice case uh, where you'll have half a dozen experts between the two parties or more. But here he's talking about just plaintiff's experts being about 10 or 12 of them. Uh, You're right. You really need Somebody who's got a war chest and somebody who's got the expertise.
0: Additionally, another point that he made uh, was that this Johns Hopkins case, along with uh, several others that he's uh, achieved results on, and I know I've seen this in my practice, were rejected by prior firms. You know, a lot of times, you know, attorneys—they all have different opinions, they all have different perspectives on the issues. You know, they have access to different experts, and you know, just because. An attorney says no to a case doesn't mean the case doesn't have merit. And like anything else, it's always good to get a second opinion. So I'd advise any anyone out there, you know, if you refer to case to an attorney or if you believe that someone's been injured wrongfully, especially in a medical setting with you, uh, the proximate cause issues are very complex. You know, and an attorney reviewed it and said, no, that doesn't mean the case is over. You know, it's very important to reach out to someone with uh, an expertise level in that field, you know, and have, get a second one. Get a third look if you really feel strongly about it, because you never know. I mean, those cases can happen. I know that I've received and gone through cases that have been rejected by prior firms and gotten really good results on them. I have several that are pending right now. You know, it's a really important part of it. And I just want, I think it's a good reminder uh, to don't, just because the one person says no, it doesn't mean that's it.
1: I agree. You would do the same thing for your health. You would get a second opinion from a doctor about your health. You should do the same thing with your case. And I'm with you. I've got cases in our office right now that other firms said no to or other firms couldn't handle for whatever reason. um, So they said no to them. A lot of times when it comes to med mal cases, uh, or even more complex cases, a lot of lawyers will turn them down simply because they don't want to file them. They don't want to try them. And they don't necessarily have the finances that they need to keep that case going for two, three, four, five years that it takes to get it to verdict. And that's no fault of theirs. It's just that some firms are set up in a way that they can take those cases. And some firms are set up in a way that they can't. And so to your point, don't feel that a rejection is the end of the line, Uh, you know, continue to seek out any and all expertise and opinions that you can find until you've reached a final conclusion.
0: Excellent points. And now, uh, no further ado, let's get to the interview with Chris Norman about
1: birth injury. Today, we're going to be talking to Chris Norman. Chris is a birth injury trial lawyer, uh, primarily out of Maryland, but also all over the country um, with Wace Vogelstein, Foreman and Offit. Chris, tell us a little bit about who you are and also a little bit about your practice and your firm.
2: Sure. Uh, So thank you for having me, first of all. Um, my, uh, I grew up here in Maryland in the Baltimore area, uh, from a, a, a very blue collar family. My father owns a tire store and I grew up getting my hands dirty and, uh, uh, sweating and, uh, realized that that wasn't the life that I necessarily wanted. So it encouraged me to, uh, to work hard in school, even though frankly, school wasn't ever my favorite thing. Um, but it ended up, um, I guess a, a good piece of context is I grew up as an athlete and a competitor. um, So I was always drawn to the law because I thought in litigation in particular, it gave me an opportunity to really get those competitive juices flowing. You know, um, it's always very adversarial, especially as a a litigation lawyer. So uh, it's one of the things that makes me really get excited to get out of bed every day is the opportunity to kind of continue competing in a certain sense against uh, the folks on the other side. Um, so I went to law school and somehow made my way through that and, uh, decided that I wanted to be a litigator because of the the things that we just discussed and, um, was given my first opportunity to do that, um, by doing general professional liability defense. So I was defending architects and engineers and doctors and lawyers, uh, and it was exciting, but I felt like I had to master so many different subjects uh, in order to competently defend an engineer. You've got to learn engineering uh, and architects. You've got to learn architecture. Um, so I wanted to to focus my practice even more and was given an opportunity at that point to join a med mal only defense firm. So I started defending doctors and hospitals. Um, and got a lot of good experience doing that, and frankly, enjoyed the work. I mean, every case is different, and it's interesting, and there are good lawyers on both sides, Um, but came to uh, a point in time when I realized that working for insurance companies wasn't something that was going to keep me happy for very long. Um, So I actually had a case that I was defending against uh, my current firm and my current partners, Um, This was uh, seven or eight years ago now uh, that I made the switch, and at the conclusion of that case, they asked me to join them, um, and I did. And now I focus my practice entirely on representing victims of malpractice, uh, and a a big portion of that is representing children who have physical or neurological injuries as a result of obstetrical or neonatal malpractice.
1: So in the common parlance, birth injuries is is a large portion of your practice then, right?
2: It is. I would say uh, of my personal practice, it's 70%. And of my firm's practice, it's probably closer to 80%. It's a lot of what we do.
1: And then the firm itself is 100% MedMal.
2: We are. 100% MedMal, I would say with rare exception. There are times where uh, we'll take a one-off case because one of us feels strongly about it or it's intellectually stimulating for whatever reason or we think we can create good law to better the community that we're practicing in. Uh, but a good 98, 99% of it is plaintiff's medical malpractice, yeah.
1: Um, before we stop talking about your background, I find your background very interesting because it seems to line up with what I find in a lot of plaintiff's lawyers is um, you like to win more, or you like you hate to lose more than you like to win, probably, <laughs> yeah, in okay. terms of, we're hyper competitive, right?
2: Yeah. Um,
1: but a lot of us also, I feel like, come from uh, either the defense side. I know I did, my co-host Matt did as well. Um, but also that blue collar background. Can you just talk a little bit about how you think maybe that blue collar background and that competitiveness all comes together and how you're able to help clients, especially in the Absol- now context?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is there in my mind, at least, absolutely no substitute for hard work. You can have the smartest guy in the world on the other side. And if they don't put the time in and they don't put the effort in that is required to litigate these cases properly, uh, they're going to get beat. Um, so coming again from a group, a blue collar family, I mean, if I was, when I was in high school, if I wasn't competing in a sport or doing some extracurricular activity, I was at the shop, getting my hands dirty, changing tires. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I was working 55 hours a week in the summertime in the heat or in the cold in the winter. Um, and it really instilled in me an appreciation for doing whatever it takes to get the job done and working as hard as you can to get the job done not only uh, completely, but in the right way and in the best way that you can. Um, From an athletic side, I was involved in a bunch of different sports and a bunch of different competitive-type things, but my primary sport was wrestling. Uh, And one of the things that I like about wrestling and that I think it's taught me about life and how that's translated into being a litigator is, unlike football, where if you're the running back, you can point the figure at the offensive line and say, you missed the block. Uh, wrestling is just you versus the other person out on the map and everybody's there watching. And if you didn't prepare hard enough, if you don't want to win bad enough, if you don't know what you're doing, if you didn't put the time in, in the gym, if you quit, everybody sees it. And I don't like that feeling. And it's something that I think, um, has really enabled me to be, uh, hopefully, uh, an adversary that people, uh, respect
1: yeah, that's that's a huge thing. I think you're absolutely right. There is so much brain power in the type of work that you're doing. We when you talk about experts, but you also talk about, you know, the other side, the defense lawyers that are representing these doctors and hospitals and hospital systems, and even, you know, your colleagues on the plaintiff's side and in the plaintiff's bar. Um, but there is really no substitute for for hard work. You can outwork. Even if you're the smartest guy in the room, you can be outworked or you can outwork. And I think that's such a great, great lesson to impart on people. That's awesome. Absolutely. Um, tell me about, you said you made the switch from the defense side to the plaintiff side and, and welcome. Good move. Thank uh, you. I, I did the same and I'm very happy. I'm sure your happiness level went up and it's not to uh, rub our defense friend's noses in it too much, but yeah, sure. um, it's a nice place to be. Um, but tell me a little bit about the firm itself. Tell me, um, you know, where you guys are, what you're doing and, and how people can find your firm.
2: Sure. So we are a 17 lawyer firm now. We've got an office and our home base is really in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, but we also have a, an office on LaSalle Street in Chicago. Um, we've got lawyers who are barred across the country. I'm personally barred in Illinois, D.C. and Maryland. And I've pro-hocked into a bunch of other states throughout the country. Uh, but we've got lawyers in-house who are barred in Minnesota, and Texas, uh, Michigan, Um Georgia. So we've got lawyers throughout the country, really. Um, And the majority of what we do, as we've discussed, is represent birth injured children. Um, And we are grateful to have the opportunity to do that throughout the country, really from uh, California to New York and everywhere in between, uh, we represent birth injured children. Um, And if we're not barred there, then we pro hoc in and um, we've had a lot of success doing that. And it's been um, really gratifying to be able to help so many kids all over.
1: Yeah, it's really, really great work. And um, it's kids that definitely need help of firms like yours and, and people like you. So Chris, you have a national practice like we talked about. I mean, you've got lawyers in your firm that are barred all over the country. You got an office here in Chicago where I am. You have an office on the East Coast of Baltimore. Um, if I'm a client though, and I'm a client in California, how do I know that you're my lawyer versus you know, some local counsel or something like that?
2: Sure. Um, so, and, and that's a, a question that we get and a fair question, I think, from, from families who want to make sure they're doing the right thing by their child. Um, every single case that I take out of state, whether it's in a, a jurisdiction where I'm barred or a jurisdiction where I have to pro hoc in, me or one of my partners or members of the firm is lead counsel on that case. Um, we are the ones who are working the case through discovery We're the ones who are handling the experts and theorizing the case. Um, So we're always in the driver's seat. We oftentimes like to employ local counsel just to make sure that we have our bases covered in terms of uh, knowing who's on the bench and understanding the venue and understanding the local rules. But we are always the ones who have primary responsibility for the case. Another question that I often get is, well, I'm in Oregon and you're in Baltimore, uh, so how are we ever going to develop a relationship? And for every single client that I represent in state or out of state on the very front end of these things, I will go to you. So if you're in Oregon, I'm coming to Oregon and we're going to sit down and shake hands and meet face to face so that you can know who you're dealing with and I can know who I'm dealing with. The relationships that I have with my clients are incredibly important for a number of different reasons. And it's something that we like to nurture uh, intently from the very beginning. So Just because you may be um, far away from Baltimore or far away from Chicago doesn't mean uh, that you're going to get any different level of of hands-on personal interaction with me or any other member of my firm.
1: That's so vitally important. I agree with you that relationship you form with your client uh, is a very, very important bond. And and that's incredible to hear that you're the kind of lawyer that is going to go and make sure that you're meeting face-to-face with clients. That makes all the difference in the world. So tell me how you go from a med mal defense lawyer. I mean, you talked to me about how you, you talked about how you narrowed your practice on the defense side, but tell me a little bit about how you sort of made that next leap to narrow your practice on the plaintiff side, because the med world is a huge world and this is a very significant, but very specialized niche.
2: It is. And I think for a lot of the same reasons why when I was doing general professional liability defense, I wanted to more narrowly tailor my practice. It's uh, much of the same reason why our practice has been narrowed even further from general med mal uh, plaintiff's work to representing birth injured kids. And that is in order to be the best and in order to give your clients the chance of winning every case that you handle, you've got to know the medicine better than your opponent. You've got to know the trial tactics in these specific cases better than your opponent. Um, so by focusing our practice in that way, it's given us an opportunity to become very specialized. And hopefully that gives us a leg up when we're facing firms who, who have a more um, general practice on the Medmas side. Uh, It's also just super complex work, and that's something that attracts me, is the challenge of uh, having to fit all the pieces of the puzzle together, and there are so many pieces in these cases. Um, So the extra level of complexity is something that keeps my interest, and I think that's the same with my partners and my colleagues.
1: That makes perfect sense. I mean, uh, you want to be challenged, and you want to also feel like you're doing a lot of good for people, and it's a nice area where you definitely can do both. Um, Yes. I don't do birth injury cases at all. I've never handled one. Um, I've yet to have the opportunity. If I do, you'll be the first person I call for sure. Um, But talk to us typically about um, what you see as a more typical birth injury case
2: or cases. So, the the world of birth injury litigation really had its start uh, in hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy cases, and that is. Uh, a deprivation of blood flow or oxygen flow from mom through the placenta to the baby in utero. Um, and uh, the, the bulk of these cases, at least uh, in the early years, was uh, cases looking at fetal monitoring strips. So mothers who may be listening or other folks who may have been in the room when a child is being delivered, uh, mom gets hooked up to a belt when she goes into labor There's two different belts. One of the belts is monitoring the contraction pattern, and the other belt is monitoring the baby's heart rate. And what we see on the fetal monitoring, the results of uh, what those belts are picking up, are uh, changes in the baby's heart rate in relation to the contractions that mom's having that gives us some idea of how well the child is tolerating labor. So the real traditional birth injury case that people think of is a STRIPS case, we call it. So looking at the fetal monitoring strip and figuring out whether the obstetricians or the nurses responded appropriately to what they were seeing on that strip uh, and doing what they should have done uh, to avoid a hypoxic ischemic injury to the brain. So that's really the traditional birth injury case that people think of.
1: Okay, Um, which is very interesting. Um, I do handle a lot of traumatic brain injury work, but nothing of the type that you're describing. Are there other injuries that sort of uh, tend to pop up time and again or tend to be more routine in a birth injury matter that you're always on the lookout for?
2: Sure, so uh, in terms of the the course of care, we see a lot of these strip cases in mismanaged labor. Uh, A lot of what I see is um, cases dealing with prematurity. So whether it was a failure to place mom on progesterone therapy, Uh, which is a drug that they give to women who have a history of preterm birth to try and prevent that from happening in the future, uh, or the failure to monitor the cervix, which is essentially the piece of mom's anatomy that keeps the baby inside uh, and places her claws if necessary. So we see a lot of cases uh, that involve injuries that result from prematurity when the argument is that that premature birth should have been avoided. Um, we also see a lot of cases dealing with chorioamnionitis, which is an infection in the uh, placenta um, that can result in injury if it's not managed properly. Uh, a lot of cases involving preeclampsia, which is a maternal hypertensive disorder um, that again can cause injury if not managed properly. So there is a, a, a huge range of potential complications that can happen during pregnancy, um, but those are kind of the the, the ones that we see with the most frequency
1: and that makes sense that is why probably it's so essential that you learn the medicine inside now and know you know probably as much or enough so that you can work with so many of the experts that you probably need in a case like this what are some of the emerging issues in birth injury litigation what's on the horizon what are you seeing um, as sort of maybe a next wave or what sort of cutting edge that you guys are doing that might be different
2: sure So I think there are really two emerging areas, I would call them. Uh, Within the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years, um, they've started employing a therapy for kids who have already been asphyxiated, which is called uh, like cooling therapy, basically. It's a hypothermia protocol. And the idea is that a hypoxic ischemic injury doesn't actually injure the brain when the blood flow is stopped. The injury primarily happens when that blood flow is re-established. When the blood flow is stopped to the brain, the cells can become ischemic and friable. um, That can make them more prone to injury. And then when blood flow is re-established, those friable areas of tissue are prone to hemorrhaging and things like that. So what they've learned uh, more recently is that for children who have been asphyxiated at birth, if you cool them down and then warm them up slowly, it, is, it reperfuses the brain uh, in, in a way that is less damaging. Um, so one of the areas that we're looking at, and we've litigated some cases in this area with success, is a failure to cool children who have already been asphyxiated. Um, there are, uh, it's called the NINO protocol, and there are a bunch of other criteria that they use for determining when a child should be cooled. And unfortunately, some hospitals are not employing that in the appropriate fashion. The other, I would say, emerging area is um, autism. So for many, many years, the thought was that autism was a purely genetic issue. But we've learned uh, relatively recently, and the literature is proving, that autism is multifactorial. It can be caused either purely by genetics, uh, purely by environmental factors like prematurity or hypoxia, Uh, or by epigenetics. So when environmental factors interact with a genetic predisposition to bring about that injury. Um, So our firm, I think perhaps more so than many other firms across the country, uh, we don't shy away from cases where the diagnosis is autism because we're confident now that uh, in certain circumstances, we can prove that that was a result of negligence and an environmental factor and not a genetic cause.
1: It's incredibly interesting how quickly the science and medicine evolves in a lot of these areas i mean um that's incredibly interesting to hear that there is potentially a negligence component to you know autism i feel like there uh, is a lot more awareness of autism so it's interesting to see the correlation between the two or at least find a connection that might be able to help a lot of people absolutely um You know, I've learned a lot during the pandemic about the quality of medical care, and you see across the country that certain areas have much better medical care than others. How much of a role does the quality of a hospital and the quality of medical medical care uh, play in terms of prosecuting one of these cases, bringing one on behalf of an injured child? Do, Do you see a huge difference? what are you looking for? What are you recommending? What do you say to people as they're looking for probably a safe place to, to have a child?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I think obviously uh, the, the the location where you are and the resources at the facility where you're delivering um, can can have an impact on the outcome, not just because of the resources that are available to the providers practicing in those hospitals, but because of the quality of the providers in those facilities. I mean, I think Uh, And I don't mean to demean anyone who practices at a rural facility, but in my experience, it seems like many of the kind of top tier candidates are attracted to places like Johns Hopkins or the Mayo Clinic or other high profile, well-funded, large institutions where they can effectively carry out their research and, uh, and, and do other things that are in line with um, kind of the trajectory of their career. So I think it, there is certainly some truth in the fact that um, the, the location where you are and the facility within that location can have an impact on the outcome. I also think, though, that bad things happen everywhere. Um, you know, sometimes at a facility like Hopkins or a facility – uh, that is known for research. In my experience, some of the physicians kind of get blinders on uh, to more traditional aspects of providing medical care. You know, we say uh, facilities like that are really good at caring for the zebras and not necessarily the horses. They like to see and they're they're intrigued by some of these more peripheral issues and some of the more complex issues. And unfortunately, I think uh, that that can oftentimes lead to a lack of quality medical care on some really standard, um, straightforward type issues.
1: Caring for the zebras and not the horses. That's a really, really interesting way to put it. I like that a lot. And I want to talk to you about one of those zebras versus horses kind of cases involving Johns Hopkins later on. But for right now, as you're doing an intake or you're starting out with a birth injury case, right from the get go, what are sort of some of the common um, pitfalls that I think befell people who may not be an expert in this area like you? If if I'm doing an intake on a birth injury case before I even find a referring lawyer, um, what are some of the pitfalls to look out for?
2: Sure. So, I mean, one of the recurrent defenses that we see in virtually every one of these cases, regardless, frankly, of whether there's any merit to it or not, which is unfortunate, Uh, is that the child's uh, neurological issues are caused by a genetic abnormality. Um, So it's unfortunate, but I have cases where there has been extensive genetic testing done. And um, regardless of whether they're negative or not, the defense is finding experts to say, it doesn't matter that the child's injuries are from genetics and not from the clear hypoxic ischemic insult that resulted in. presentation at birth. So genetics is always something that our our ears are tuned into. Uh, We like to look to see whether folks who call us have had genetic testing before, whether there are any genetic uh, abnormalities in the family, because obviously some of those things can be passed on, uh, and whether or not uh, there are any frank physical features that would be suggestive of a genetic cause, even if the child hasn't been tested yet. Um, so that's one of the things that we look for on the front end in every single one of these cases is, is there going to be a palpable genetic defense?
1: From the get go, when you're starting to work with a family who has a child who's been injured like this, um, how early are you employing outside experts or even maybe in-house experts?
2: Sure. So we, uh, we have a neonatal nurse practitioner, at the firm uh, who helps us with a lot of our reviews, but unlike I think many other firms, the the primary lawyer on every case that comes through my office is the one who is investigating the case. We don't send the case to an associate to do a timeline. We don't send it to outside shadow counsel to do timelines. We are the ones from the very beginning that interact with the clients, uh, that figure out what records we need, and that dive into those records in every single case. It's not something in our experience that you can farm out uh, and still do the best job for your client. Um, so we're looking at every case personally, all the details, um, and it goes from there. So how, how early are we employing experts? Um, having done enough of this work, we can usually get a pretty good sense for whether there's a case to be made without speaking with an expert. Uh, But in those cases where we think there's a case to be made or we're just not sure, uh, we're reaching out to experts very, very quickly as soon as we've had a chance to dig through the records. Now, oftentimes when parents uh, come to us very early on, say their child is less than a year old, the damages won't really uh, be solidified just yet. It's hard for us to make prognostications about whether the child's going to be employable or be able to live independently. So there are certainly uh, cases where we'll do the investigation on the front end, make sure there's a standard of care and causation case to be made, and then wait and allow the damages to develop before we take the next step.
1: It's got to be hard to manage uh, a client's expectations and emotions. And probably, I know I'm a parent of young children who, thank God, they're very healthy. Um, But if they weren't, or or I was going through this situation, I think it'd be very hard as a parent to understand hey, we're going to park your case for a couple years. Uh, how are you explaining this to the clients? And can you tell us just really why that's probably in a client's best interest?
2: Sure. Yeah. So uh, it, it is sometimes difficult. And as a parent of two young children myself, I, uh, I'm not going to say I understand because thankfully I don't have a child with one of these injuries. And I think it's a little bit disrespectful to act like I really understand where they're coming from. Um, but, but I listen to a lot of these parents and I've heard a lot of their stories and I know how anxious they are to get some measure of justice and to get answers and to make sure their child's future is secured. Uh, but our job as lawyers, uh, the, the majority of the work we're doing and the majority of our obligation flows to the child. Um, and if in our estimation, the best, uh, interests of the child are served by waiting, then we just explain that to the client. And more often than not, they understand and they're on board. But that's one of the reasons why I think from uh, the very first interaction with the client, it's incredibly important to not only be compassionate, but to be brutally honest. Sometimes you have to tell clients things that they don't necessarily want to hear. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think that in to your benefit because they know they can trust you. Um, and if we start establishing that type of a relationship from the beginning, then if we do have to have that hard conversation about waiting to see how the damages develop and things like that, uh, then I found that clients are receptive to that so long as they know we're doing that because we have the best interest of their child in mind and for no other reason.
1: You said one of my favorite phrases, brutal honesty, that uh, carries through every bit of every case that I work on for sure, all the way from an intake to the first time I'm given the opportunity to talk to a jury to the last time I'm given an opportunity to talk to them. And I'm sure that's the case for you. Um, Are you preparing every case that comes into your office for the eventuality of a trial? I know that that's our practice, and it may not be everybody's, but I want to get your insight on it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, frankly, the reality of these cases, birth injury cases, is that if we've gotten a case to the point where we're going to file suit, We've reviewed it, we think it's meritorious, and an expert thinks it's meritorious. The exposure in these cases is so high that the vast majority of them do settle. Um, Be that as it may, it is much easier, and I'm sure you've had this experience, to settle a case that you've prepared to try than it is to try a case that you've prepared to settle. And when we take on the huge responsibility of representing a child that has a significant injury, We don't take it lightly, and every single case that comes to our office, if we decide to litigate it, uh, we are 100% ready, willing, and able to take that case to trial. Um, Again, the vast majority of these types of cases don't get tried because of the exposure, uh, but when they do, we're ready for it. Um, You know, it happened to us last summer in the Byron versus Hopkins case that I'm sure we'll talk about. I don't think anybody really expected that case to go to trial, Uh, but when Hopkins was unreasonable and trying to do what was right for this child, um, we called them on it and we took it to trial and we were ready and we got the results that I think, uh, helped to prove that.
1: Yeah. And I do, I very much want to talk about that case because it's incredibly interesting. But before we get there, I want to just kind of get, uh, some of your insight on, you know, best practices, trial tactics, things that you find to be uh, very useful as you're litigating these cases, um, so let me just start at the beginning, we touched on experts, but with your standard um, hypoxic injury, what sort of experts do you want to consult with? Where do you wanna draw a line, You know, in terms of too many, too few? What are some best practices that you find work really well for you?
2: Sure, so in terms of the the types of experts that we usually have to retain on these cases, I mean, it's not unusual for me to have 10 or 15 experts on on a complex case. It almost always uh, involves an obstetrician or a maternal fetal medicine doctor, a high-risk obstetrician. Um, Oftentimes, it will involve an obstetrical nurse. um, So that's really the standard of care side of things. And then as we move into causation and damages, we usually will have a neonatologist, so a pediatrician that cares for um, high-risk babies. And they are the ones who help give some insight into the presentation of the child at birth and really connecting the dots between uh, what's happening on the obstetrical side and then what happens to the child from a neurological perspective. So they're really the glue that holds those two things together. Um, We almost always have to have a pediatric neuroradiologist, uh, what's going on in the brain and the impact to the brain from these various circumstances. Um, is almost always described by the pediatric neuroradiologist in terms of what they see on the brain imaging. Um, We will almost always have a placental pathologist. It's a big component of these cases. How well was the child being perfused in utero? Is the placenta an appropriate size? Is there any evidence of infection or hemorrhage or anything like that that could have predisposed this child to injury or caused an injury prior to the labor? Um, Moving into to damages, we will oftentimes have a developmental pediatrician uh, and a pediatric neurologist who will evaluate the child and uh, comment on what that child's future looks like. Are they going to be able to work? Are they going to be independent? Are they going to need a G-tube? Are they going to, is the G-tube going to remain in place? Are they going to be able to walk? Um, so pediatric neurology and developmental pediatrics are the folks who usually speak to that for us. Uh, in some of the injuries where it's not as clear um, like the child doesn't have spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy maybe they have autism or maybe they're walking and running and jumping and playing with friends but their IQ has been affected by uh, medical negligence in those circumstances we will oftentimes bring in a a neuropsychologist who will do a battery of tests and comment on the child's intellect and ability to interact uh, and be social and things like that and then of course the usual slate of, of damages experts with a life care planner and a voc rehab expert and an economist. Um, that those are, I think kind of the bread and butter. Um, but oftentimes, depending on the nature of the case, we'll need, um, you know, a pediatric cardiologist or an infectious disease doctor or, um, other kind of adjunct experts depending on, on the nature of the case.
1: How often do your injured child's treating physicians overlap and become an expert in your case versus having an independent expert who is giving you the 30,000 foot view and educating the jury
2: sure so uh, the records are often incredibly helpful in proving causation and damages and things like that but uh what i found and i don't know if john you've had a similar experience the communities are tight knit and by that i mean the communities of physicians um, so when there has been an act of negligence, they seem oftentimes to really circle the wagons. And it's hard for us to get a treating health care provider in the same community as the individual that we're suing uh, to come to trial and really help be an advocate. Um, so there are occasions, but I think they're rare occasions where um, one of the child's treating health care providers will become an expert. Um, that being said, again, the records oftentimes tell the story and that's all we need. You know, the treating health care providers have concluded that this child, in fact, had HIE or that this, this child, in fact, has autism and what the cause of that was. So the records tell the story, um, I think, more frequently than the treating health care providers actually taking the stand.
1: Interesting. That makes sense. Um, to see it in black and white on paper, I'm sure, carries a lot of weight with a the jury. These are very complex cases, though. They're very medicine intensive science intensive. I mean, you have to be on your game and very sharp and very smart. And I'm not, I don't mean to sound insulting when I say this, but how do you convey all of that very, very high level information to the average juror who has never studied, may have never studied this or learned anything about it, or even people like me who never really studied it or learned anything about it?
2: Sure. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think As litigators who are involved in this type of stuff every day and who get into these battles with defense counsel over the course of 16 months or however long it takes you to litigate your case, you you get so focused on the minutiae and the little aspects of the case that aren't necessarily um, meaningful to the jury that you have to take a massive step back before you try the case and, and look at it with a fresh set of eyes and say, what really matters? Um, So for me, it is about finding that razor's edge where uh, you present enough information and evidence at trial to make your prima facie case, to make sure you can get through motions. Um, But that's about it. Jurors don't need much more than that. They're smart, right? You can give them a general overview of the story and nine out of 10 times they're going to get it right. They don't need all the details. Um, So you've got to know your audience and you have to, I think, appreciate the fact that As We we have so much time to spend with these cases, and there are so many little battles that happen that aren't ultimately important, and realizing that as long as we've lived with the case and as much of the detail as we've gotten into over the course of two years, the jury's only going to have two or three or four weeks to get all the information you need to give them. So figure out what's important. Figure out... uh, Knowing your audience, of course, is important, but figuring about a way to distill that down into a package that meets your burden of proof um, and just tells the story in a really simple way. And oftentimes that's tough to do, but we have to, we have to again, take a big step back and try our hardest to see the forest through the trees.
1: Absolutely. Um, storytelling is so crucial in doing what we do and conveying it to a jury, so that, that makes perfect sense. Um, some of the battles, that we, we engage in during litigation before we actually get to put a case on before a jury. Um, some of them, you're right, they end up being um, for naught, but some of them are vitally important. In a birth injury case, talk to me about some of the motion practice, some of the those battles, and the ones that you feel um, are really the ones you need to gear up for.
2: Sure, um, so we are always on the lookout for uh, potential dispositive motions, and the majority of them are kind of in this realm of, of uh, evaluating the scientific evidence. So in Maryland and some other states, we use the Fry standard, the Fry-Reed standard. Uh, in federal court and a bunch of other jurisdictions throughout the country, they use Dalbert, as you know. Um, so in a case, for example, the autism cases, um, for a while that was such emerging science that we had to be sure that our experts had the right literature to help show the court that what we are saying is, in fact, generally accepted. Um, So it's really for us identifying the scientific Daubert-Fry type issues that could arise in a case and making sure that we're well-equipped to to fight those motions. Another set of motions that we see with relative frequency are ones having to do with agency. Um, So the majority of physicians, OBs, will only carry a million in coverage, and that is not even near uh, enough to care for these kids. Um, and uh, we will oftentimes name the hospital as a defendant, um, either because of a direct allegation against the hospital, because of a nursing claim, or via a parent agency. And we have to make sure that we've developed enough evidence throughout the course of the litigation to prevail on motions directed at a parent agency. So we're looking for pay stubs and physician agreements and how much control was the facility asserting over the doctor um, and things like that.
1: For the average person, truly for 99% of the country, a million dollars is a lot of money. I mean, more than enough money. Um, But in cases like this, you're you're saying it's not enough money. And I kind of want to talk to you just about verdicts generally. These verdicts and these results, they tend to be uh, astronomical. They tend to be the type that give the tort reformers of the world a lot of ammunition. Please do us all a favor and dispel that notion and explain why these verdicts are so important, why they are the way that they are, and why they need to continue to be the way that they are.
2: Sure. So I think what the the misconception that a lot of people have is that um, there are Social programs that are going to take care of these children, and that uh, you know the taxpayers essentially who are paying into those programs should be saddled with the majority of that. I happen to disagree with that. I don't think that uh, all of the hardworking people of the world uh, should be paying uh, to subsidize the negligence of healthcare providers. Um, so that's one thing that I take issue with. Thankfully, the majority of states have pretty strong collateral source rules and things like that. But at the end of the day, if we um, if we don't adequate, adequately compensate the kids, then somebody else is going to pick up the tab. And I don't think that's fair. When we've proven that the negligence of a healthcare provider resulted in a dramatic injury to the child, they should be the ones responsible paying for that. Um, the, the other thing I hear frequently is well, isn't that enough? I don't know. I have children, and I'll tell you what enough is every single thing that they need. To live the happiest, safest, most productive life to reach all of their potentials, that's enough. Uh, And it takes a lot of money to do that. Um, Oftentimes these kids are G-tube fed and they are wheelchair bound and they have seizure disorders and uh, they need a competent healthcare provider with them 24 hours a day. Uh, a, A lot of what we'll hear from the defense is Uh, Well, can't we just use a a medical assistant or can't we use a glorified babysitter to take care of Johnny or Jenny? And the answer is no. If they have a G-tube or they need medications or they have a seizure disorder, then we need somebody with them who can recognize when those issues are happening and intervene in a way that could potentially save the child's life. Um, So these big verdicts are big verdicts. Uh, because the children need a tremendous amount of care in order to live the life that they deserve to live the one of these pray frankly for hospitals and doctors to stop having to pay these verdicts is to be very very careful about the care that they're providing they have oftentimes two lives in their hands moms and baby and i applaud them for what they do but it's a huge responsibility and if you can't take on that responsibility and um, realize the gravity of of what you have in your hands, then you should pick something else to do. And
1: that makes perfect sense. And And the flip side of it is what you said that's so important that people don't realize is if the negligent party is not going to pay for the damages that they cause by breaking whatever rules they broke, then you and I and every other taxpayer is going to be on the hook for the difference. It's not just that those damages suddenly go away. It, we have to pay for them through social programs. Our taxes go up. Um, right. And, and all of those things. So, vitally, vitally important. One of those cases that I think um, is very important and very important to talk about for, for many, many reasons is the Byron versus John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center case. Um, and I, I'm not going to uh, you know, try to give uh, an overview of the case so much as I'm just very, very interested in the case itself. And then I want to talk to you about anything that might have developed uh, since. So sure. the Byron versus John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center case resulted in a $229.6 million verdict uh, last July. So about 11 months ago from when you and I are talking right now. Um, and it is a tremendous verdict. And I applaud you and your firm for the tremendous verdict because it it means, I'm sure, a tremendous amount to this young uh, young girl and her family. But tell me about this case. Tell me why this verdict is the way that it is and um, how you guys accomplished such an amazing result.
2: Sure. Um, so my partners, Keith Foreman and Mary Cook and our associate Sarah Smith are the ones who worked up and tried that case. Uh, it was against Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore. And the the kind of 30,000 foot overview is It was a young 15-year-old African-American immigrant woman who came to Hopkins uh, with limited prenatal care, and uh, she had some complications going on uh, that required her admission to the hospital. She was told, um, because of an error, that her child weighed less than her child weighed, and that her child was less mature gestationally than her child actually was. And because they got the estimated fetal weight wrong and the gestational age of the child wrong, they decided to discontinue fetal monitoring. They basically told mom, uh, your child's gonna die. Even if she comes out now, we are not going to have NICU in the room to resuscitate her. Uh, There's no hope for her. So So they had
1: written her off right from the get go. They had. Just because of a misreading?
2: Yes. So it was, uh, there was a miscommunication amongst the providers about the gestational age of the child. So uh, as folks who do this type of work know, and as probably other folks know, the, the viability or the, the uh, chance that the child will survive following delivery is driven in large part by how big that child is, and it's usually measured in grams, and how many weeks gestation the child is. And there is a massive difference uh, in viability between, say, a 500 or 600-gram baby at 22 weeks than there is from a six, uh, seven or 800-gram baby at 23 or 24 weeks. Um, so somewhere along the way, there was a miscommunication about the gestational age and size of the child. And because of that, they, like you said, they wrote mom and baby off, said, your kid's going to die anyway, um, so we're not going to resuscitate. We're going to unhook the fetal monitoring. Uh, and they did that. They left her off of the fetal monitor for, I think, close to two days um, before somebody realized that they had messed up the gestational age and the the weight of the child. And instead of going to mom and saying, we made a mistake, we should hook you back up to the monitor, there is a chance that your child can survive and survive neurologically intact. The physician who determined that, uh, instead of again going to mom, she went to the head of the department and said, we have a problem. Um, and they never told mom about it and they never hooked her back up to the monitor. And, uh, this poor little girl was asphyxiated during that unmonitored period and now has very, very significant injuries for which she's going to need a lifetime of care. Um, and I think the reason the verdict was so big is because the jury realized, uh, that the care was horrific, that it is not appropriate Uh, to not keep mom in the loop or to um, assume that just because she's 15 or she's African-American, that she's not entitled to all of this information and to make a decision about her baby. Uh, And then the way the case was defended. I mean, they essentially tried to blame mom and said, you said you didn't want to deliver the kid or you didn't want a um, C-section and completely ignoring the fact that those decisions that mom made were based on the misinformation that she was given by the defendants themselves. Um, And at the end of the day, the child is just horrifically injured. Um, It's very, very sad. And she needs a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous amount of medical care in the future. Um, And I think with the jury's verdict, what they were saying was not only what you did was wrong, uh, but this child deserves the absolute best that the world has to give her.
1: When you describe the case, it's mind boggling to me that an institution as world renowned as Hopkins doesn't immediately uh, come to the table and say, all right, you're right. We screwed this one up. You know, 99% of the time we're great, but this is that 1% and what will it take? Um, Why didn't that happen or what happened?
2: Why didn't they tell mom or why didn't they try and resolve the case? Why didn't they try
1: to resolve the case? I mean, I can, um i I don't know that i'll ever understand why they didn't tell mom except for uh reasons that are probably wholly unacceptable
2: let me interrupt you i'll tell you why okay because we have uh testimony in trial in front of the jury about why they didn't tell mom uh and the individual uh testified that they were afraid of a media backlash and a firestorm about what would happen if it got out that they gave mom wrong information and unhooked the monitor because of that, uh, and that is in the trial transcripts. That's why, and that's a shame. And I think it's really a microcosm of 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 what goes on in a lot of these cases. Hospitals and doctors, the vast vast majority of the time, are fantastic, and we all rely on them, and we all appreciate them, and they are um, really adored for what they do for all of us. And I think that's well founded. But there are times when um, I think people forget that medicine is big business. Um, Hopkins and a lot of these other institutions are businesses at the end of the day. And uh, for whatever reason, I think they lose sight of the human aspect of these cases. And they make decisions that are not necessarily based on what's the right thing to do, uh, but what we think we need to do for business reasons, and oftentimes that results in um, a failure to find common ground during mediation, uh, or a failure to appreciate uh, the fact that they can lose if they go to trial.
1: That makes sense, and both of those, um, to me, are gut-wrenching results, that someone would say, I'm more fearful of being found out than telling the truth. And the flip side of that, which I encounter often, and I know that you do too, the business of medicine versus the practice of medicine. I agree with you. The vast majority of practitioners and doctors are spectacular and are somewhat hamstrung by the business of medicine. Um, In this case, though, um, Hopkins took an interesting stance. There was an email exchange that uh, you had showed me that I am going to read from, and then I want to talk to you about it. The Lead counsel for Hopkins says uh, they felt that if they were going to try more cases, they need to be willing to take some verdicts, um, which is is kind of a stunning admission uh, in this case. But talk to me about that email and talk to me about the implications of it and how uh, things went from that moment on.
2: Yeah, I mean that was really a, a turning point. I mean we had had conversations, and I think we were reasonable in our position regarding. Uh, potential resolution of the case and we continued those conversations uh, through really the first part of trial Um, I mean I think by all accounts uh, we tried a very good case the opening statements were powerful and we had some great experts and uh, I think we were winning and um, as a result of that conversations for a period of time about resolution continued Uh, But then we received that email that basically said, this is our number. You're not getting any more. Uh, We're not willing to pay on what they called non-meritorious cases. And if we're going to try more cases, we have to be willing to take verdicts. And I think from that moment forward, um, if our trial team wasn't already laser focused, they certainly were then. They knew that the case was in for the long haul. And we did absolutely everything within our power to make sure that we made it count for that little girl.
1: I think it's absolutely incredible. And you go back to the email, and you said it a minute ago, and Hopkins' lead counsel said it. Uh, We're tired of paying on non-meritorious cases. To take that phrase, you know, from that email and turn around and look at a two hundred and twenty-nine point six million dollar verdict has to be incredibly satisfying. Um, not is. only not only for the justice you're able to accomplish for that little girl, but the change in the system it has to affect it in some sense, right?
2: Absolutely. You know, I, it, it's our hope that uh, not only the firms in Maryland and the, the, the insurers and the institutions in Maryland uh, know that we're not afraid to try these cases on behalf of our clients, but that other, you know, institutions throughout the country know that we're not just a settlement law firm. Uh, we don't take these cases and then settle for whatever we can get and tell the clients that, you know, that's a good number. Uh, We take these cases because we want to secure justice. And we take these cases because we want to make sure that the child is taken care of. And if the folks on the other side of these cases aren't willing to pay what it's going to take to accomplish that, uh, then we will try the cases. And I think uh, hopefully by, by, by not only talking the talk, but walking the walk and taking these things to verdict, it sends a message to other people that you need to be careful when you're caring for mothers and their babies. And, um, when you're dealing at least with us, uh, if you don't make it right, we will do our best to make sure a jury does that.
1: So we're talking about the Byron case. It sounds like a very strong case. It sounds like it has a lot of legs. What are some of the difficulties of this case? What is, what is Hopkins looking at that we're not seeing?
2: That's a great question. One that we've been trying to answer for a long time. How did they see the case the way they saw it? Um, I think a a big portion of this is at one point in time during the hospitalization, mom was offered a cesarean section um, and she declined it. And Hopkins tried to use that to say our hands were tied. Even had mom been hooked up to the monitor, she had declined a C-section so we couldn't have removed the baby, even if there were indications to do so. And uh, uh, in making that argument, I think one of the missteps that Hopkins made and their lawyers made was really discounting the intelligence of jurors. You know, jurors are smart people. They bring a lot of common sense into the courtroom and they can smell things that are out of place when they are. Um, And by making the suggestion that we couldn't have done anything anyway, it completely ignores the fact that that decision that mom made was based on the bad information she was given. Um, So I think it's very likely and mom, in fact, testified in deposition that she would have made a different decision if she had been given all of the information. Um, So I I think that's one of the big rubs in the case for Hopkins was she didn't consent to the C-section and a failure to understand that that the fact that she didn't give consent was driven by the, the errant information that she was given initially. And the jury saw that.
1: It's incredible how you can take such a complex case and a complex matter and tell a story, and a jury is so smart that they can see through that smoke screen. I'm always uh, so impressed by that and so uh, happy that we're able to put these cases in front of a jury. If I'm a lawyer sitting in my office or in my car right now, or I'm a family who might uh, suspect that my child has a a wrongfully caused birth injury, what advice would you give them uh, going forward?
2: From a a legal perspective, or as far as I'm concerned, my suggestion is always, if you have any question or concern, just reach out. We don't charge. It's not like an hourly fee like defense lawyers charge or a family lawyer is going to charge. Everything we do is at zero cost to the client. Um, We work on a pure contingency fee basis. So just reach out and have us look into things, right? If you have... Um, maybe concerns about what happened or you have a child who has a deficit and you're just not sure why, just call. You know, I'd be happy to talk with you about it uh, to get some records and look into it. Um, But it just, it doesn't hurt to investigate really. If you have questions for, for the lawyers uh, that are listening, I can tell you uh, an important thing, at least in, in my mind. And I think uh, some famous philosophers would tell you that, uh, intelligence is knowing what you don't know and i wouldn't know the first thing about screening an immigration case or a social security disability case i don't know what to look for i don't know what makes a good case or what makes a bad case and i think sometimes lawyers um, fail to recognize that and maybe try to screen cases that they shouldn't be screening Um, so just if you get a call about a potential birth injury case call me My office will do the intake. My office will do the screening um, and just let us kind of do what we do. Um, So uh, I think that's the biggest piece of advice is if you have any concern or you have any potential case, just call, right? It doesn't hurt for us to look into it. And we don't want to miss the opportunity to to bring justice to one of these children because the case was screened improperly or because the parents have some hesitation about reaching out.
1: If people are in that position where they need to call or they want to call or they think they have a case, how do we reach you?
2: Sure. Um, So the firm phone number is 410-998-3600. You can ask to speak directly with me. I speak with all of my referral sources and clients whenever they want. I'm not one of those lawyers that's tough to reach. Um, You can email me at chris at malpracticeteam.com. If you want to do some investigating into our firm and our lawyers and our background, the website is malpracticeteam.com. Some of our most successful cases have been uh, on cases that have been turned down by other lawyers. Um, So a lot of, I mean, we get a lot of calls from prior clients who have connected us with folks or from lawyers who refer us uh, cases to review in the first instance. But we also get a lot of uh, calls on cases that have been rejected by other firms, whether it's uh, by firms who don't really specialize in this area of the medicine and they don't know what to look for, what experts to call, uh, or even firms that do specialize in this and just have a different view of the case or have access to different experts than we have. Um, so call not only if you think you have a case for your child or if you think you have a, a case to review in the first instance, but also if you think you have a case that. Um, has been rejected by another firm. That's worth a second set of eyes. I mean, I can tell you the Byram case, for example, was a case that had been rejected by a number of other firms already. Um, so it doesn't hurt to to get a second set of eyes on it and see if we can maybe uncover something that wasn't uncovered by a previous lawyer or a previous investigator.
1: Absolutely, a second opinion is always very very important. Chris, thank you so much for giving us an insight into this world, for diving deep into the weeds with us, for really opening my eyes, and I'm hopeful a lot of others, to an incredible practice area that's doing a lot of very, very good things for um, some very injured children. The one thing I want to ask you before we go is what's going on right now with the Byron case? Where are we at? Uh, Did Hopkins finally pay the verdict, or what's going on?
2: So uh, the first thing that happened after the verdict was post-trial motions, of course. There were motions for remittitur and motions for a new trial and all the, tough that we, uh, all the stuff that we come to expect when we achieve a verdict. Um, we had a, a very astute and well-respected trial judge um, who I think listened carefully to argument throughout the case and helped us to establish uh, a record that was very strong. And she made well-reasoned rulings that uh, enabled us, I think, to um, be successful in the post-trial motion. So uh, $25 million of that 229 million was for this little girl's pain and suffering. And unfortunately, in Maryland, we have a pretty restrictive non-economic damages cap. So that aspect of the case was remitted down to our cap, which is $700,000 or something silly like that. Yeah. Talk to a parent who can look you straight in the eye and tell you that that's fair compensation for the pain and suffering of a little girl who has a brain injury and is going to be wheelchair-bound for the rest of the life. Yeah, agreed. Life. That's an aside. Um, the rest of the post-trial motions, we were successful. The trial judge preserved all other aspects of the verdict, um, and uh, Hopkins then took an appeal. So the case was appealed to our intermediate appellate court here in Maryland, which is the Court of Special Appeals. And uh, those arguments were heard electronically because of COVID uh, in July, and we are waiting for a ruling from the Court of Special Appeals. So that's where things stand now.
1: Great. Well, you'll have to come back and update us after the court makes their ruling and hopefully after justice is done by the appellate court. Um, Incredible verdict, incredible niche practice. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much for taking time today to talk to me about it and talk to all of us about it. I'm excited to hear the outcome and to have you back and talk some more soon.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. And thank you for all that you do for injured victims.
0: Welcome back. And uh, John, thank you for that excellent interview with Chris Norman. Learned a lot, a lot of great information in there. And and like I said before, it's nice to hear someone with that kind of in-depth expertise, you know, talk about something that you can tell they're truly passionate about. Uh, But before we wrap up today, we want to give you our 30-second trial tip. One thing we do to make our cases stronger and our our trials better. Uh, John, what's yours for this week?
1: My trial tip is to turn every page. So I have a trial coming up uh, despite everything that's going on with the pandemic. And a lot of the arguments hinge on medical causation. And as I'm going through thousands of pages of records, I managed to find one line in a record shortly after my client's car crash that I think is a a smoking gun for us. And it's been overlooked by all of the defense experts. All of the defense experts are saying that my client never complained about the very specific thing that I found that she complained about two days after the crash. All the defense experts say, she didn't complain about this particular injury for six months. And I've got evidence now that says, no, she complained about it right away. It was just that she had other issues, particularly a traumatic brain injury that needed to resolve first before they can could treat that. And I think that that's going to be really helpful. And it just goes to show you that you got to read every line. you got to turn every page. The devil is
0: in the details. Absolutely. That's a great find. I'm sure your client will be thrilled with that. Um, my tip of the week would be uh, that the cross-examination of the defense medical expert really begins in four deer when you're picking the jury. You know, it's one of those things that you know. I have a case coming up. I finally got a trial date too, not quite as soon as yours, but uh, early next year. And you know, I'm thinking about the case and planning for uh, the cross-exam the defense medical examiner and the other aspects of trial. And it really begins in voir dire because one of the things that we have to talk to the jury about and get their uh, opinions and feelings about is comparing the evidence provided by different sets of doctors. You know, like some people may have trouble sitting in judgment of a doctor and they'll treat them all equally, you know, and we need to explore whether that's going to be the case and whether they're going to say, well, you know, we have clinicians on one side who are treating them and then an indep- a defense paid medical examiner on the other side, you know, are we able to give different weight to these opinions? You know, and that once you start in voir dire it continues an opening, you know, you explain why everyone's there. You know, we have clinicians who are here because they treated the patient and then we have a paid opinion witness from the defense. You know, you need to be able to judge the credibility of these people. And then, you know, cross-exam, you obviously go through their opinions, bases, lack of bases, you know, lack of professional qualifications to give the opinions they render. And then conclude in closing with the, you know, again, comparing and contrasting the treaters versus the defense medical examiner. But you got to do it early. You got to do it in voir dire and closing and opening so that by the time they get up on the stand, you know, jury has already a good idea what's about to happen. And sometimes they already, and it tends to help shape their perspective on their testimony.
1: Absolutely. What you're so important in every aspect of your case, it just sets the tone. It lets the jury know where you're going to go. You can roadmap everything. But that in particular, the comparing and contrasting of a treater versus a hired gun is incredibly important because the average person who doesn't do this day in and day out is not going to see them differently until you point them out. That's such a huge, huge thing to consider.
0: All right. And that's our episode for today. I want to thank Chris Norman and everyone else who makes this podcast work. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at On trial Podcast. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Really helps us get the word out and makes us more searchable. I'm Matt Heimlich.
1: And I'm John Rizvold.
0: And we'll see you on trial.